Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Well, good morning, Liberty. How are we doing this morning? It's I'm doing well, thank you. I think that was Claudia somewhere, right? All right, there you are. Okay, recognize the voice. Um, Well, it's my privilege to open up God's Word this morning. If I have not met you, uh, my name is Dave, and um, I have the opportunity and privilege of serving here at Liberty as pastor of student ministry. So I know a lot of the younger faces, and I know a lot of the older faces, too, because they are attached. Let me, let me go back on that. All right. I recognize a lot of you. There we go. Well, last week we wrapped up our five-week series on Gather. And seven weeks ago, Kevin Earhart uh, finished our first section of Seeking Jesus, going through the book of Luke. And it's been seven weeks, that seems like a little bit of a gap, but actually from the end of chapter 2 to the beginning of chapter 3, there is an 18-year gap. There's an 18-year gap, so we're still ahead of the game, we're not behind schedule, we're going to be okay and in this, we, uh, we left off with, with Jesus in the temple. He was a boy. He was 12. And now Jesus is right on the edge of entering into his earthly ministry. He's about 30 years old. John the Baptist is also about 30 years old. Remember, John the Baptist is about six months older than Jesus. Jesus does not enter into this story Um, By person, that's later. I believe that is next week. But he is mentioned. It's a lengthy passage. We're not going to read it all at the beginning. We're going to go through it in sections. We have a little bit of an introduction of people in place. We're going to look at the cry in the wilderness, the prophecy from Isaiah. We're going to see... John crying a cry of repentance. He's going to cry for repentant living, and he is going to cry from humility. Then we're going to wrap things up, and then we'll be out of here. So here we go. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the regions of Ituria and Trachantus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Albaline. What in the world are all of those? So here is a map that you cannot really read, but I have a pointer. Ooh, it works. Great. We have a pointer. So we have some characters. Um, Caesar is in Rome, which is over here. Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea, which is right here. 
All right? We have Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, which is right here. All right? And we also have Philip. He is Tetrarch of Ituria in Trachantis, which is right these two sections right there. In Lysanias, Tetrarch of Al, it's all the way up at the top. You can barely see it. That word right there. That's where it is. We also have two other characters. They're the high priests of Annas and Caiaphas. So they will be here in Jerusalem, right around there. There's the, there's the setting of people and place. And as I was in college, I had a professor, and he taught us how to remember this region by remembering a raisin, a rope, and a peanut. Track with me here, okay? The raisin is actually the Sea of Galilee. The rope is the Jordan River. And the peanut is the Dead Sea. And you have the little notch here, and you can draw it out really simply. So that will give you a reference, and you know that Jerusalem somewhere around here. You have Bethlehem near it, and then you also have Nazareth up here. Gives you a little bit of reference to be able to understand the locations that we are talking about. So a raisin, a rope, and a peanut. And Jesus went into all the region around the Jordan. Where's the Jordan? It's the rope. So it's going to be right here, the region around the Jordan River, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And he is proclaiming a baptism for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's cry for repentance in the wilderness. John's cry of repentance is for the forgiveness of sins, and this is not salvation in any way. This is not the salvation that is extended to us through faith in Jesus. It is, and forgiveness of sins would not be a new idea because we have an understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system of sins being able to be atoned for by different things, namely the shedding of blood, at least temporarily, not quite to Jesus where there is a one-time atonement for all sin. But people were coming out to him. And Matthew chapter 3 lets us know that many people from Jerusalem and Judea in all of the area around the Jordan River were coming out to hear John. What were they coming out to hear him do? What were they coming out to observe? Some of them, some of them were probably coming out to mock him. Some of them just wanted to see if he really ate locusts and honey. Some might just be following the crowds. And some are coming for repentance. And all who come to seek to get a glimpse of this rugged man in the wilderness. John did not come out of the blue just randomly. There's a prophecy that is proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, and it's in our text this morning, starting in verse 4. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, 
And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John is preparing the way for Jesus to enter into his ministry. Why is there a picture of a golf course on the screen? This is the country club of Scranton, and before my wife, daughter, and I, no boys were yet um, around at that time, and uh, I used to work at the country club of Scranton before I came here. And from time to time, we would have visitors or guests that would come. And this one particular time, the head pro comes to me. I worked at the starter desk in charge of the tea times and all that stuff, got to know a lot of the members, and it was, it was a generally a, a good experience. He goes, Dave, we have a politician coming to golf. Okay. Who is it? I don't know. All right. But you'll know when he gets here. Okay. I trust that. And so the day arrived that a car pulls up and some security detail get out of the car. They come up. They check with me. Is the tea time ready? It is. Which tea do we go off of? That one. All right. We're good. And out of the car um, comes somebody who I didn't know. At the time, he was the house minority leader. It was John Boehner. This was before he was a household name when he became Speaker of the House. The security team comes up, asks me if it's ready, and they go right to the tee, and they tee off. I'm like, well, that was kind of fun. They're in the round, and they order some food, and I am assigned to go up and bring the food to the group. And so I get the food in the golf cart, go out, and kind of pull up easily. I'm just like, I don't want to look suspicious. I pull up next to one of the agents, one of the security agents, some federal agent of some sort. Um, I'm like, sir, here's your food. Thank you. You're welcome. And I kind of linger until it gets awkward. And I ask him, can, can I ask you a question? And he says, sure. I don't know if I'll be able to answer it, though. Okay. I'm like, it might sound a little bit um, rude, but it looks like you have a pretty cushy job. <laughs> it looks like you are watching Mr. Boehner play golf and eat lunch while you're doing it. And he said, if it looks like that is what I am doing, I am doing my job. I'm like, oh. so." What, what's going in through your mind right now, if I can ask? He goes, well, before we arrived, we did background checks on every single employee of the country club. We had to do background checks on every single house that lined the perimeter of the golf course. There are two roads that run through the country club that are public roads. We need to be mindful of every single car that travels down those roads at any given second. 
we had to understand the map of the sewer system that is underneath the golf course. We need to be mindful of wind speed at any given point on the golf course. We need to know the quickest route to a hospital. We need to know the quickest route to safety if there's a lightning, not lightning storm or if he's under fire. We need to be mindful of where the highest vantage point of any point of anywhere on the golf course that we are. And like all of that's going through your mind right now. Yes, it is. I'm like, well, you're doing a great job. <laughs> In a similar way to the security agents, John is making a way or clearing a path for Jesus to come into his ministry. And he starts that off with the first words being our first point. I'm finally getting there 12 minutes and 10 seconds into the sermon. A cry for repentance. And he says to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? His opening dialogue. John comes out swinging. Who is he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to the crowds, specifically to anyone hold, who holds to a performance-based model of righteousness. Mainly the religious leaders and the Jews, John is actually speaking to the hearts of his hearers, cutting past the pretense, performance, and facade. What do I mean? People are coming out to be baptized, and John senses that they're not coming out for the right reason. As one commentator puts it, he says, like vipers or poisonous desert snakes try to escape or flee before an approaching brush fire, so many Jews of John's day were trying to escape God's judgment or wrath by fleeing to John for baptism. However, John sensed that their reason for coming to him was just their safety and not a genuine repentance. In other words, they were coming out for an insurance policy. How do we contextualize that to today? We can say that we are Christians by many markers in our lives, and we can say that we're Christians by some markers that don't begin with faith in Jesus, and we can say that we are actually repentant or we have a relationship with Jesus. Since I go to church, I must be a follower of Jesus. Since I give generously to my church and to others, I must be accepted by Jesus. Or since I am saving myself for marriage, or since I have saved myself for marriage, surely Jesus knows how difficult that was and how difficult it is, so I must be a Christian. And using the spirit of John's words, I would say, just because of what you do or look like, how you appear, how you perform, does not mean that you have a changed heart. It does not mean that you are truly repentant. And it's not just my words. You brood of vipers may sound familiar 
to some of you. And if it doesn't sound familiar, I'll, I'll let you know why it sounds familiar to some. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? Jesus is saying, on the outside, you speak as you should, but on the inside, there's an unrepentant heart. So John is crying for repentance, and if I can use a golf illustration again, John is teeing up Jesus to speak those words. He is preparing the way for the Lord. Why, John? Because he is preparing the way. John goes on to say, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Right living comes from a repentant heart and not a performance-enhanced lifestyle. Right living comes from a repentant heart and not a performance-enhanced lifestyle. Repentance, to turn from, to turn from sin and to God and to turn from ourselves and to God. And before they have a chance to respond to that word of bear fruits in keeping with repentance, he just says, and don't begin to say yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Don't point to your pedigree as a basis for your righteousness or your repentance. Wait a minute. Isn't Abraham an important person? Yeah, he is. Did God make a covenant with him? He sure did. Wouldn't it be significant in that time if you were able to show that your family tree traced back to Father Abraham, right? There you go, there you go. So let's just pray. If you could trace your family tree back to Abraham, it's pretty significant. John is saying to the crowd that simply having a family lineage that points to the patriarch of the Jewish faith means very little if there was not genuine repentance right there, right then, within your hearts. They're unable to claim Abraham's righteousness as their own by merely being related to him. So what, about it? so what about us? Well, I was able to speak with someone this last week. She is digging into the historical documents of Liberty Bible Church in prep for our 100th anniversary. And she has found that we have a person attending here right now that is a seventh generation attendee of Liberty. Would John call this person a viper because of that? No. Having a faithful heritage is a wonderful thing, but he would call them or he would share some words with them if they were placing the grounds of their repentance and righteousness on their family tree and not having a repentant heart themselves. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
John then goes on to talk about stones. What is all of that about? For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Later in Luke chapter 19, it's the triumphal entry. The people are shouting, blessed is the name of the Lord. And some of the, um, some of the um, gospels, it's Hosanna. And some Pharisees tell Jesus, shut them up. And Jesus responds, if the people are silent, the stones are going to cry out. John's getting to the point Um, You're saying that you are in step with righteousness and repentance, but it's a false righteousness and repentance. It's performance-based. It's pretense. It's a facade. Your lineage may be able to be traced back to Abraham, but your hearts are far from his. If you don't have true repentance, you are no more children of God than these stones, which, by the way, God could fashion into children if he would desire or will. And then cutting words. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And as a tree that does not bear fruit gets cut down because it doesn't bear fruit, it's useless for bearing fruit, it's thrown into a burn pile, so also is their false repentance and righteousness. A cry for repentance. Point two, a cry for repentant living. The crowds hear that there isn't a shortcut to true repentance by having an external righteousness that is a performance or pedigree base. So they ask, what, what should we do? Verse 10. John, similar to Jesus, when he was talking to the rich young ruler, appeals again to their hearts by talking about possessions and money. Dave, I thought we were done talking about money. We just talked about money for like five weeks. Well, you can blame blame John, maybe the preaching calendar, but... And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Do you have multiple tunics? Be generous. Do you have food? Invite people over to eat with you. A repentant heart is going to understand that since forgiveness is not based on what one does, that they are able to give to those in need. To individuals who lack basic necessities of life, like clothing and food. Now, I will admit every time that I see a person or a family, it can be outside of Target in Valparaiso or Walmart in Valpo, They have a sign of some sort, and usually it's black Sharpie um, etching a little bit of a message on there. I often ask myself, I wonder what got them there. And then I ask myself, are they fake? And I would challenge us, and John challenges us, myself included, 
regardless of their motives. They're individuals made in the image of God. They deserve to be loved or to experience love. It might not be cash. It could be food. It could be clothing. Or you could just sit down and ask questions and listen. Tax collectors also came, asking him a question. Teacher, what shall we do? And a soldier asked, and we, what shall we do? And the people in place of power, the tax collectors and the soldiers, John says, use it to help people and not cheat people. This is a very straightforward application of repentance. In Jesus' kingdom, generosity is required because his entire kingdom is built on the grace and the gift of God. Jesus would have a conversation with the tax collector during his ministry. His name was Levi. We know him by the name of Matthew, and he ended up writing what we now have as the first gospel, the book of Matthew. Jesus had interactions with a particular Roman soldier, a centurion, in fact. He had the responsibility of, he was a officer, and a centurion was over 100 soldiers. Thus, centurion, centuries, 100. Jesus had an interaction with a Roman soldier who came to him and asked him to heal a servant of his. And Jewish leaders, of which Jesus was, um, were not in the habit of being fond of Roman soldiers. This soldier actually had an affection for the Jewish nation for one reason or the other, and that was also not a normal thing for a Roman soldier to do in that day. And Jesus ends up healing a servant of this soldier. Jesus is crossing lines of stigma with compassion, love, and extending a healing, helping hand. And he's not compromising the gospel, but is it possible that he's actually exemplifying what it should be? Did Jesus know that Roman soldiers were hated by the Jews? Yep. He crossed that line. Did Jesus know that it would be a Roman soldier that would actually pierce his side after he died on the cross? I think so. But I also believe that Jesus knew that after his crucifixion, the curtain of the temple would be torn from top to bottom by an earthquake and there at the foot of the cross would be a group of soldiers, and one of them would be a centurion. Don't know if it's the same one, probably not. At the moment that he saw and felt the earthquake, and at that moment where the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, a centurion would utter the words, truly, this was the Son of God. A profession of faith. So we have John, a cry for repentance. We have John, 
a cry of repentant living, and we have John, a cry of humility. Point three. We see in this, in this section of verses 15 to 20 that John is thought to be the Christ, the Messiah. He had all of the region coming to see him in the wilderness. With that popularity and exposure, I would think it would be pretty easy to fall prey to living into and stepping into that expectation and maybe himself developing a bit of a Messiah complex, literally. He does not. And as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This phrase has so much humility wrapped up in it. He has all of the people gathered. He has all of their attention, and they are just waiting to hear what he is saying. And then all of a sudden he goes, hey, I'm not that guy. I'm not him. Actually, like, his sandals, I, I can't untie. And for us, in our culture, like, the worst thing we really do with our shoes is we have, like, stinky feet when we take our shoes off. And... Might be a practice in our house that school's over, boys come in, I'm not going to say which one, but they, the shoes come off and then we're like, the boys are home. <laughs> John saying, I only baptize you with water. This is temporary. There's somebody that's going to come that is more than, that is going to do more than just forgive, but he is going to give you life, and he's going to give you life to the fullest. I'm not that guy. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. That is a duty in that day that is given to the lowest servant of the lowest rung of the class of servants. In those times, there are dirty roads, wastewater trenches on the sides of the roads, Imagine what is in the wastewater trenches and animals dropping things that animals may drop from their end regions on the sandals. Dirt, mud, all that stuff caked together. That would be the role of the lowest of servants to remove those sandals. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. I baptize you with water. He who is, I, is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I cannot worthy untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There is a direct... Um, Reference to the day that is coming of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit that came with flames over the heads as well gathered in the upper room. John is preparing the way. And John then leans in a little bit more and says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. 
So what is a winnowing fork? What is a threshing floor? I don't have the floor, but I have the, the winnowing fork. And you can imagine with me, picture a circular area that is typically on the top of a mountain or a large hill where the wind is able to sweep up. And what happens is they take the wheat after harvesting and they beat it so that the wheat kernels fall off of the stalk and what is left is a big pile of stalk, of chaff, and the, the, the actual wheat kernel that they need. So how do they do that? They take a winnowing fork and they throw it up in the air. The wind comes and blows the chaff away. The heavier grains fall to the threshing floor and when they're done, they have the wheat and everything else is blown away. John is speaking to how one day Jesus will judge the intentions of the heart. John is able to read a little bit about what their intentions may look like, but Jesus will know the intentions of the heart. Jesus will actually speak to people directly because he knows what they are thinking. And there will be a separation between people, the wheat, who will enter into the barn, and people, the chaff, who will be burned with unquenchable fire. And if you are here as a skeptic or somebody who is in the midst of even kind of deconstructing their faith, this is a point maybe for you that you're like, I love what Jesus does. I love who he is, but this whole hell thing, I can't do that. It's possibly one of the things that is the hardest hang-ups for you. You like Jesus in much what he talks about and models, but you hate it when preachers talk about it, about hell. I would love to have a conversation with you about that, but briefly, I just want to say, everyone in this room, I would say everyone in this world, we all want justice. When we see wrong, we want it to be made right, especially when we are wronged. On earth, if there is a good, then there's also an evil. If on earth there is love, then there's also hate. On earth there is reward, and there's also punishment. And Jesus enters in to the thick of it. Jesus enters into the thick of the brokenness. Jesus enters into that lives for 33 years. In those last three years of his life, what he does is he is slowly walking towards his death. He's walking towards his death because in part of all the evil, the hate, and the punishment. But he's walking with a good heart, with love, and with joy. Jesus takes the punishment in our place. Jesus bears the wrath 
that is coming our way because of what he did on the cross. Dostoevsky, speaking to a skeptic, says, what is hell? I maintain that it is the suffering of being unable to love. Heaven, hell, earth, we see the good, we see the evil, we see the love, we see the hate, we see the reward, we see the punishment and the penalty. Heaven, there will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more all of the list of the bad. And in that separation of the wheat and the chaff, it's together right now on this earth. And one day, we'll be separated. And what Jesus is going to say as he enters into his ministry, and what John is making the way for, repent. Repent. Not because of solely fear of destruction, but repent because of the love of Jesus that is extended to you in his life, in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. I would love to be able to talk with you. I'll be out in the hallway. So what do we do? John's crying in the wilderness. John would be beheaded when he was 32 by Herod. Jesus would be crucified about three years later from this time by the age of 33. What does this require of us? As a follower of Jesus, it requires in the very least a death to ourselves. Continually seeking after Jesus, continually speaking the gospel into our hearts and not allowing our own righteousness to be what we put on, but being clothed in the righteousness of, of Jesus that we are able to live in the joy and peace that he brings. And for somebody who is not yet a follower of Jesus, repent, repent. I would love to have that conversation with you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us. May the words of John, as they cut in the day that he spoke them, may they cut into us in a way that is, yes, maybe painful, but for good, for healing, for the healing of relationships, for the healing of families, for the salvation of souls. God, we love you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.